I'm Nathan, I'm the children and youth pastor here at New Life Church, um, and I have the wonderful privilege of sharing and encouraging with my friends this morning. So, all right, to start this morning, I want to invite you to get a Bible out, I want you to open it up, and I want you to find a book of Titus. You'll get it, it's there somewhere in the New Testament, it's short, it's a little blink and you miss it type thing. Not as short as Philemon, which is the next book in the order. But it's in there between 2 Timothy sorry, and uh, Philemon and Hebrews. So if you're around that space, you'll be getting it right. If you've got your digital Bible with you today, you'll find it very easily. Just scroll down. That one will do. Um, we're going to get to that in a minute. We're actually going to, we're going to read all of it. It's three chapters. It's not hard. It's easy. We'll get, we'll get it all. I remember years ago, I was listening to... Um, a man called Daniel Lim, and some of you will know that name and some of you won't, that's fine. But he, he talked about the Word of God is strong enough to stand up by itself. And he's like, I, I, I uh, dream of the day when you can get up, read the Word of God, and that's the end of it. You sit down, it doesn't need anything more from anybody, and the Spirit of God just goes... That's what, that's what I want. So let's, let's hope that happens this morning. That'll make my job nice and easy. Um, But failing that, I have prepared some things. Okay. (laughs) So what we're looking at with the book of Titus is a letter written by Paul to his associate, Titus, on the island of Crete. Um, Titus has been left there to strengthen the church, particularly to establish elders and leaders within the church. Now, uh, here's a little map. There's Crete there. Back in 2013, my wife and I had the wonderful privilege of spending six weeks traveling around the world. And as part of that, um, we participated in a Bible tour. So if you're thinking about Israel, do it. That's a Bible tour. It's not what we did. We did something, we did a New Testament one, but go for it. If you're like, ah, at least turn up for the info and stuff, all right? Um, But We took part in this Bible tour and it started here in Izmir where the ruins of Ephesus are. And then we had the arduous and difficult task of taking part in a Mediterranean island hopping cruise. Um, And we bounced around and wound up in Athens. We actually managed to stop at Patmos for an afternoon as well, which is interesting. Um, But we went to Crete. There's the boat, just to make you jealous, I guess. Uh, this is the church, Agios Titus, in Heraklion town, going back here, they've spelt it with an I, I've spelt it with an H because I did, um, and that is the church that is there as a monument to Titus, there's me, young, carefree, <laughs> no mortgage, no children, less grey, um, yeah, Oh, sometimes you just, parents get it. Sometimes you just miss those days where you can wake up on your own schedule and do your own, don't have to consider how many snacks you need to bring. Um, this is the inside of the church. This is not my photo because you aren't actually allowed to take photos inside. It was one of the things you, once you're inside one of those sort of sacred sites, you couldn't take photos. So I had to get that one from somewhere else. Um, and they actually have the skull of Titus still there today as a bit of a monument, I guess. Um, Anyway, so we got to see, there's, there you go, Titus, 
colorized photo. Um, and a painting of Paul and Titus holding up the Cretan church. All right. So we got to go there, 100% would recommend. It's great. History is wonderful. Bible history is awesome. It helps you give context for some amazing things. You know, we've been to Ephesus. We've seen the library. We've seen these, uh, uh, what are they called? Not Colosseum things, although we did see that. Um, auditorium type things, raked seating where, where some amphitheater, that's the word, amphitheater. We've, we've seen the one that, and, those, and the guides would say, this is where Paul made that speech. This is the amphitheater in Ephesus where he made that speech. And you stand there and go, wow. Or you're standing in the Corinth and it's like when Paul talks about food sacrifice to idols and whether you're comfortable eating that or not, the context is this monthly, fe- this monthly festival where just thousands of animals were sacrificed. And that right there is the butcher where it was done. And then there'd be like too much meat, so they're practically giving it away. So Paul's actually talking about like, hey, there's cheap food there. It's okay to eat it. If you don't want to, that's fine. Don't. But if you want to, you can. Because it's cheap. Very practical man. So when we look at Scripture, context matters. So my talk is going to focus on Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. It's only a little part of it. A little part of a little book. But because it's a little book, I thought it'd be good to read it together. Um, let's start. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll read. You follow along. I'll make it easy for you. Titus chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, just that little phrase, that matters. You'll see why. Keep that in mind. God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now at just the right time, he has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It is by the command of God, our Savior, that I have been entrusted with this work for him. I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior, give you grace and peace. I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to one wife, and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. They must be silenced because they are turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching. And they do it only for money. Even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. This is true. So reprimand them sternly, to make them believe strong in the to make them strong in the faith 
They must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who have turned away from the truth. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander each other or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely, and you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your truth, of the teaching. Sorry. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive in every way. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have authority to correct them when necessary, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Once we, too, were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. Do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. I am planning to send either Artemis or Tychicus to you. As soon as one of them arrives, do your best to meet me at Nicopolis for I have decided to stay there for winter. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos with their trip. See that they are given everything they need, 
Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. Everybody here sends greetings. Please give my greetings to the believers, all who love us. May God's grace be with you all. It's short. It's punchy. Um, and it's, I think it's good to have the whole thing in context. Taking, taking pieces is wonderful. And it has its place. But seeing the whole letter beginning to end. And I, I believe that verses, chapter 2, verse 11 through 14 is sort of, it's a hinge. It's a key moment in the letter. And I'll, I'll show you that structure in just a moment. Before I go any further, I do just want to say one thing. And it, it was on my heart this week as I was preparing. And it was simply this. If you are someone, and this might just be for teenagers... Uh, that's that's a bit condescending. Um, sorry. Um, if you are someone who struggles in knowing how to sort of study God's word, take a notebook and a pen and just begin to write it out. Oftentimes, we gloss over, we power through. It becomes a race to get to the end of my required reading so that I can move on to something else. And I have found for myself, when I take the time to slow down enough to have to read, process, and write, the Holy Spirit begins to speak to me. I begin to have thoughts. What's motivating that when he says that? What does that look like in my life? How would I do that when I slow down? And so that's just a little tool. I use it all the time. I have a journal that's just got chapters and chunks of, of Bible passages written out. And I did it this week with Titus. So, all right, let's go. Paul is calling for righteous living. The reason being, if you want to turn there, it's in verse 12 of chapter 1. Cretans have a reputation for being liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. So do you see when he says God who does not lie, he's speaking directly into their reality. God who does not lie into a people who have a reputation for lying. The little things, they're all in there. Paul is saying live righteously, live godly, live Christ-like. And then it builds to this because moment in chapter 2. And then he finishes with live righteously. Paul's exhorting Titus. Oh, I skipped ahead too far. Paul's exhorting Titus and the other Christians to confront the culture in a positive way by teaching about God our Savior, making the teaching of God our Savior attractive. Um, let's, here we go. Now we'll start here. Chapter 2. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Uh, one of the things that Titus seems to be confronting is the disconnect between the gospel the Cretans profess and their lifestyles. Paul is highlighting the connection between right thinking and right living, or wholesome teaching. Or you might call it orthodoxy, that is right thinking or right worship. And orthopraxy, right living. The way we live demonstrates the gospel we believe 
or our lifestyles reveal exactly what we believe to be true. You cannot hide that. It comes out. I've been reading a book um, by a man called Stephen McAlpine. It's called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. And it was featured in New Life News as a featured resource. I'd encourage you to go and grab that and have a read. It's in the library, or unless someone here has already borrowed it. Um, he touches on this connection as a means to counter the negative cultural narrative about Christians. He says this, And the way we live must be shocking in a way that is also compelling. It must raise questions for those looking on. Questions such as, if their way of thinking about sexuality and individual expression is so wrong, how come their lives look so good? Or if they're, supposed to, if they're supposedly given over to hate speech, how come they serve and love their enemies? Or why is their speech so measured when they are scorned on social media? Or why are their marriages strong, their single people chaste, and their same-sex attracted people so fulfilled by non-sexual relationships? The way that we live demonstrates the gospel we believe. And Paul is saying that in chapter 2. If you go, it, sometimes it doesn't come out in your, in your Bible well, but I was looking at it. He says, he's got these little bits. Uh, teach older men. Teach older women. And at the end of that little bit says, then they will not bring shame on the word of God. Encourage younger men to live wisely then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Slaves, obey your masters. You will make the teaching of God our Savior attractive in every way. The way that we live our lives should reflect the gospel that we believe and it should be attractive because the good news of Jesus is attractive in a broken world. Thank you. Please feel free. I like feedback. I'm trying to coach the teens to be a bit more vocal on Friday nights. Um, that's thrown me. Sorry, let me just recenter for a second. The way we live demonstrates the gospel we believe. You cannot separate the two. Now I want to move on to my, my point here. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And there's a phrase I want you to remember, even if you forget everything else that I say this morning, and it's this. Grace is a person, Jesus, who transforms us into his image. Let's look at verse 11. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. Now, there's a couple of things I want to draw your attention to. Paul uses the word for. He's linking everything that he's just said with everything he's about to say. It's not a new idea. It is the motivation for what he's just said. Live rightly, live rightly, live rightly, live rightly for. It's not a list of rules and commands, okay? There's, there's an there's a intrinsic motivation built in there. For the grace of God has been revealed. That's the reason. It's interesting to note, I find it interesting to note, that this is, a re this is a reversal of Paul's usual way of speaking. Paul typically goes, God is so big, so awesome, this is amazing. And then you get verses like um, Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in light of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So because God is big, live like it. Now he's speaking to a people who are, there's a disconnect between life 
and truth or their gospel and the way they're living. So he sort of reverses it. It's nothing major. I just find it interesting. And you might as well. So the reason for right living is because the grace of God has been revealed. Salvation is brought through Jesus. Therefore, you can reread this verse as Jesus has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. The grace of God is Jesus. This is very encouraging for me. I'm a simple person. Sometimes the language that we use in church and in Christianity gets a little bit fiddly. We have some words, big words, Colin Buchanan, big words that end in shun. <laughs> See, the mums get it. Some, some, you know, like we've made up half those words to explain things. And so when we try and talk with people, propitiation, excuse me, it almost sounds like a sneeze. <laughs> They're big ideas. I'm a simple man. I need things to be anchored. I need it to be grounded. I need it to be simple, even anecdotal. Sometimes I sit in meetings and I feel like everything's just going whoosh. And I go, I don't know what you're talking about. And then someone will go, well, it's like if you did this and then the outcome was that. That one I get. I understand that. All this other stuff, no. So, grace is a small word with very large meaning. We've made little cutesy phrases like God's riches at Christ's expense. And, and Wayne has stood here and used that. I'm not, I'm not belittling that. But it's not the fullness. And so even it just doesn't work for me sometimes. So to say that Jesus is the grace of God and has been revealed and brings salvation, I go, that I can get my mind around for two reasons. It helps me understand salvation is Jesus only, which is obvious. We get that, but it just reaffirms it for me. And the second one is this. It gives me a model. I get to look at the life of Jesus and go, that is what the grace of God looks like worked out in a human life. Now I have a target. Someone, someone once said to me, the, the, you've, you've heard the phrase like, to, to err is human? To err, is that what the phrase is? To err is human? Yep. Or I'm broken and sinful. I'm just a human. I can't get it right. My, a, a gentle rebuttal that I heard to that, and I'm going to pass it on to you. It's not mine, but it was simply this. Jesus was fully human. So to err is not human. It's sub something else. And so to look at Jesus and go, that is what the grace of God looks like. He did it. I can. It's hugely encouraging for me. The way this verse talks about the grace of God being revealed or appearing, I like to, um, it's not like it was never there. But in Jesus, we see the fullness of it. We know what grace looks like in a human because God became human and showed us himself. Remember? 
Grace is a person, Jesus, who transforms us into his image. And the verse ends with all people. It's a little reminder. It's available to anyone at any time. So long as you're willing to say yes to God, give up your control and give up trying to save yourself. All right, verse 12. It teaches us, I think it's up there, yeah. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So knowing that the grace of God has appeared in Jesus, and that grace is Jesus, we can look again at verse 12 and we can say Jesus teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live un- self-controlled, I nearly said uncontrolled, self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So how does Jesus teach us to say no to ungodliness? Well, I have a teacher in my household, my wife, and uh, she said any good teacher will sort of follow this type of approach. Number one, I show or I tell. Number two, I do. Number three, I help. Number four, you do. And if you want, you can actually look at this laid out in the Bible. I show or I tell. You have got an Old Testament where God laying out, this is what righteous living looks like. And the students being overwhelmed, like most students would. Going, uh, no. Jesus says, all right, I'll show you. We have the life of Jesus living out righteousness through the grace of God. And then we have God helping. You have the Holy Spirit living inside you who helps you. And now it's your time to do. House church is a wonderful opportunity for you to do. I say that very sincerely. Push yourself a little bit. Hop out of your comfort zone. Try leading something. He's shown us, he's done it, he's helping, just give it a go. Remember this, it's going to turn up a few more times. You're going to have it memorized by the end. All right? Grace is a person, Jesus, who transforms us into his image. You see, God is so kind in the way that he trains us. Just like any learning process, we have successes and failures. The issue for us is always what do we do with the failure? A few years ago, I was watching a 60 Minutes interview with a woman called uh, Sarah Blakely. And she's the creator of Spanx. Women are going, mm-hmm, men are going, mm-hmm. At the time, she was recognized as the youngest self-made female billionaire. That is not the case anymore, but this was a while ago. And uh, she told a story in the interview about her, how her father would sit with her and her brother at the dinner table throughout the week and say, what have you failed at this week? And his disappointment would not be in the failure. His disappointment would be if the kid, if the child said "Um, nothing. Because it meant they hadn't tried anything and they weren't giving things a go. The father was redefining failure, not as not succeeding. It was a failure if you were not trying. Grace That is, Jesus teaches us that our failures are not final. Just like a student 
is only a failure when they give up learning. We fail only when we give up on the grace of God, transforming us to be like Jesus. When we throw in the towel, we walk away, we spit the dummy, we're done, I'm out, see you, goodbye. That is where we fail. Sin is not a failure in the sense of it is bigger than the cross. It is bigger than the grace of God. It absolutely is not. We fail when we give up and walk away. The enemy would like to see us condemned for our failures. And this is where I start to get confused between this talk and the one I did at youth the other week, where I talked about how much God likes you. I talked about how failure is not the end of it. And David, in the deepest, darkest moment, turned to God. And God still said, I love you and I will help you. God does that. He helps. Always. You don't clean yourself up and then come to God. You come as your mess and he helps you. Grace is a person, Jesus, who transforms us. Transformation is not a Cinderella moment. Transformation is a life lived one foot in front of the other, continuing to pursue Jesus. So do not get caught up in a fairy tale that says, I will be zapped. Now, if you ask someone who's been zapped, praise God, because it happens. It's the exception, not the rule. So it's not our stumbling or our sinning that defines whether we succeed or fail, but what we do after that. Do we give up? Do we walk away? Or do we hear God's voice in that moment that says, yes, I've always known you weren't enough. But I'm making you more like Jesus. Let's go again. That is my hope this morning. That when you leave here, you're encouraged to pick yourself up and go again. I don't know what you've walked in with today, from the week, from the morning, whatever it is. But I'm wanting you to leave with a buoyancy in your spirit that says, yeah, God is still for me. I can go again. And for parents, it's your kids as well. God is still for your kids. There is hope in that place. Don't give up. Verse 13. You see, we are not defeated. We have hope. It says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have hope. It's not nothing that we cling to. There's an acknowledgement in here that our salvation is not complete until he comes. And that's why we long for his return. That's why we yearn for it. We long for the day when the fullness of our salvation will be realized. No more sin. No more death. No more crying. That day that is the appointed end of sin. And until that day comes, we live in this tension of what we call the, the already, but the not yet. We are saved, but this isn't the fullness of it. If this was it, it's a little depressing. But we hold on for hope. The grace of God is transforming you into the image of Jesus. And one day, we will see him. And in the twinkling of an eye, we will be like him. That is the fullness of our salvation, and we hold on to that. I, I love the idea. Right now is the only time that you can give God time. 
When we cross over into eternity, time is no more. It doesn't function that way. So right now, you can give God something that you cannot give him at any other point. So we hold on for hope and we give him our time, we give him our focus, we give him our energy because we know that great and glorious hope. One day we will be like him, transformed in a moment, the fullness of salvation. But we live in the already, the, this already but not yet. We are saved but we're being saved. And just in case you need to see it again, Paul summarizes the gospel message in this way in verse 14. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. You see, years ago I I heard a preacher say that Jesus died for more than just you coping through life. Here in Titus, Paul says Jesus gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. Do you see that? Every kind of sin. Paul's not talking in generic terms about the condition of sin, although he could have. But he speaks and he says, every kind of sin, God has, Jesus has come, the grace of God has appeared to free you from every kind of sin. And there's a level at which we sort of settle with sin. We accept that I'm going to struggle with this probably for the rest of my life. All right, that's fine. Or it's the onion thing. God peels back layers. Oh, there's more of it. Please stop. Right? Jesus gave his life to free you from the big and the small. His commitment to your freedom far surpasses your own. One little way that I see this is not quite the same, but it's like prayer for healing. There's certain sort of disorders, illnesses, whatever you want to call them, that we just sort of... Except, this is part of life. We're just going to go for it. We're just going to rest like that. And I, I don't mean this as a criticism, but like asthma, diabetes, these things that are lifelong and impact us, but we just learn to live with it. We've settled. Glasses. Did God make you to have glasses? I don't think so. Now, we've got this whole sort of corruption of sin and the world sort of falling apart thing going on, but... But they're just, I'm I'm using as an example, they're just ways that we settle for stuff. But Jesus didn't die for you just to cope through life. It's not a criticism, it's an exhortation. There's more for us. You just go, Jesus, I don't want to settle. You gave your life every kind of sin, every kind of disease, every kind of, right? You've got to hold on to that promise and go, yes, Jesus, I want the freedom. And the tension is we still hold out hope, knowing that we're saved, we're whole, we're healed, the already but not yet. So if Jesus chooses not to in this moment, you just keep holding on. You hold on for that day when it's actually going to happen. I don't see, personally, I don't see a difference between a prayer prayed now for that type of thing and the fulfillment of it down there. One day I will be whole. One day I will be fully healed, fully functioning. Whether it's today or on there, I don't care. But God, I am holding out for more.
Grace is a person. Jesus, who transforms us into his image. I really hope that you will remember this and hold on to this. And here I am, bringing it to a close. The worship team, you guys can come up now. I want to speak hope and encouragement this morning. I've said it already. I'm hoping that you leave going, Oh, yes, he said some good stuff. I liked some of those things. Not all of it, but... Um, you see, this grace thing is not our idea. God chose to reveal his grace through Jesus. Nobody's twisting his arm. Nobody's forcing him to do it. It is a gift. See, we have Ephesians 2, verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. So because it's initiated by God, it's sustained by God, and it's completed by God. Your job is to come along for the ride and hold on for dear life. See, God doesn't give up. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Philippians 1.6, we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.9 says, we are persecuted but not abandoned. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't do any of this. Jesus does. God does. The grace of God revealed to us. Tim Keller is a very intelligent man. And he said this, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So this morning, my encouragement is this. Go again. When you stand up in a second, stand up and feel the burden just sort of lift off you and go, Jesus, I am all these things and worse. But you are transforming me to look like you. I'll say yes again today. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So this morning... morning we're going to close out we're going to sing oh praise the name because this talk what i've tried to encourage and exhort you with i want it to come out of you as worship we fix our eyes on jesus and we say yes praise the name of the lord because it's got nothing to do with me he does it in me through me i just say yes and i go again and i go again and i go again can you do that this morning? Right, stand up. Jesus, we say yes to you again this morning. We say yes to your grace at work in our lives, strengthening us. God, 
We thank you that this is not about us. You initiated this. You did this. You sustain it. And you will bring it to completion. We want to live as people who the truth of what we believe comes out in the way that we live. The truth is, we are worse than we understand, but you are greater than we could know. And so we look at you again this morning, Jesus, and we remind ourselves that the grace of God is found in Jesus and you are transforming us into your image. I bless you with these words from Jude. Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time.